Well, if you have a Bible with you, open up to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is where we are in our fall sermon series, Rescued and Redeemed. And so we're continuing to look at the great epic story of how God has rescued his people and redeemed them to living a new life as his people. And so we're going to continue that in chapter 19 today. But before we dig into that, let me pray and ask the Lord uh, to bless his word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Lord, I pray that today, as we look and see this amazing story of your presence and your holiness, that we would see exactly who you are. And as we see you, we see ourselves falling short, but we see the grace and the mercy that you give us through Jesus. So Lord, would you show us this great truth as we look at this epic story today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I want you to imagine that uh, you live in England and King Charles, you get, you get this notice sent to your house that, that King Charles is coming to your house for dinner. And so you say, okay, well, that's shocking, right? This is amazing. I don't know why that he's choosing to come to my house to have dinner, but we got to clean the place up, right? And so what do you start doing? You start cleaning up. You start pulling out that fine china that you got, you know, before your wedding that you've never used. You know what I mean? You get all the finest things you can find. You go spend some money to clean up the place, right? You get your tea and your biscuits or whatever it is that they eat over there. You get it all ready, right? And it's good to go. You, you think you've done the best you can to prepare, all right? Well, King Charles comes to your house. And you have dinner, and it goes well, and he tells you, well, actually, I'm just going to live with you, if that's all right. <laughs> okay, uh, okay, all right. So w- what do you do then? Well, now that's a game changer, because now you don't just, you're not just preparing for, to entertain for one meal, for one night. You're going to have to reorient your entire life around living with the king. If the king is going to reside with you, if he's going to live with you, that means you have to change your schedule, you have to change your priorities, you have to change the way you live from the very start to finish, everything is going to change. You see, in a much greater way, obviously, the analogy doesn't even compare. God is coming to reside permanently with his people. And what we're going to see today is an amazing, dramatic story of how God comes down from heaven to begin a fuller, more comprehensive, ongoing, permanent relationship living with his people. About seven weeks has passed since God delivered his people out of Egypt. They've been on the move, as we've seen these last few weeks. They crossed through the Red Sea, through God's miraculous parting of the sea. God provided food and water for them in the most miraculous ways when there was none. They've seen his care. They've seen his power. They've seen his provision. But today, they're going to see something else about God. You know, as we've already discussed in this series, 
God doesn't just rescue us from our sin. He redeems us to a new life living in his presence. And so we see that the people are now coming to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And they've been on the move, but now you know what they're going to do? They're going to stay there for about 10 months. They're going to camp out at the foot of this mountain for about 10 months because why? God is going to teach them about this new life. He's going to teach them what it's going to look like for them to live with the king of the universe. Israel, in many ways, is still getting to know God. How do you worship God? Who is he really? What is he really like? How do you live for him in this world? See, they're still learning all these questions. They belong to God. He purchased them. He redeemed them. So they belong to God. They are his children, but there's so many questions. The rest of the book of Exodus is going to stay here at this location at Mount Sinai where God will teach his people the answers to all those questions. And boy, does that begin in a fascinating way here in chapter 19. So let's look at verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to talk about some points that we see here in this story of God coming to live with his people. So Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so about seven weeks, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God makes it very clear. He is the one who saved Israel, right? He did the saving. They didn't do anything to earn it. They were slaves in a terrible life, and God pulled them out of that. He resurrected them out of that life. He is the one who has protected them, and he is not finished with them yet. You see, their salvation is not the finish line. It's the starting line for a whole new life of mission and purpose for the Lord. So God assures his people here, you belong to me. You are mine. The whole earth is mine, but you're my treasured possession because I came down and saved and rescued you. So I have a great purpose for you now. It's not over that you know the Lord. It's just beginning. Verse 7. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So in other words, the people say, yes, let's do this. We have seen God's great power. We have felt his provision. Yes, we will do what he says. So the people are agreeing with God. They want to live out his purpose for their lives. And that's great. But... God is about to teach them 
the importance of taking that seriously. They need to know more about who God really is before they can move forward in his purpose and mission for their lives. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Well, that is amazing. God is saying, I am coming down. I'm going to come down to this mountain and they will hear and they will see my glory. Israel has seen God's power on display, right? They've seen his provision, but now they're going to learn this other characteristic of God, the most foundational one. We're going to get to that in just a minute. So God continues to instruct Moses. Here's what he says, verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Now, this is interesting what we're about to read here. Listen, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him. In other words, whoever does touch the mountain, you can't touch that person. But he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Again, this is very interesting. God tells Moses to tell the people to get ready. He is coming. God is coming. Are you ready? Right? That's what he's saying. They must become consecrated. In other words, that, that word means to be set apart as holy. They must become consecrated before him as clean. And notice the people cannot even get close to God. We'll talk about why that is in just a moment. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. Right? They're setting themselves up to become clean before a holy God. And they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, ladies, don't be offended. Okay? In other words, that's their way of saying Right? Do not have intimate relations so, so one can remain consecrated to the Lord fully as he prepares to come. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. I just love that phrasing. The people are about to meet God. I mean, that's, that's intimidating, isn't it? And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now look at what happened, verse 18. So there's, there's this thunder, there's lightning, this thick cloud is coming down. The people are afraid. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. The mountain is literally shaking. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. 
This is a frightening scene. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, if you're Moses, you have to be trembling with fear, right? I don't know that I want to go up into this amazing sight of power, thunder, lightning, fire, smoke, earthquake. Verse 21, and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Verse 23, And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. What is happening? What does all of this mean? This amazing, dramatic scene of God's presence coming down in this, in this way, on this mountain, in the middle of a wilderness with about two and a half million people, by the way, watching. There's three things I want us to see from this text today that I think speak not just to the Israelites then, but to us now. You see, the first one is what we see more at the beginning of this passage when God is instructing Moses and making this covenant with the people it's that God desires for his people to know him and to make him known. God wants to know his people, and he wants his people to spread his fame and glory around the world. Look at, look at chapter 19, verse 4 again. God is speaking. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and did what? Brought you to myself. See, that's, that's amazing in and of itself. I mean, if we stop right there, we should just be in awe and amazed at how the creator of the universe, who holds all things together by his power constantly, there's not one single atom that exists in this universe that is not under the sovereign power of God. If so, he would cease to be God. That amazing, one true and powerful God, look at this, desires to know people. He wants his people to know him. He wants to be in a relationship with his creation. That alone is fascinating and amazing and profound. But it's even more amazing that he comes down to his people. You see, just the very fact that God came down to Mount Sinai and wanted to take the time to teach them. Because you see, next week, we're going to study the Ten Commandments. God is about to teach his people. He's going to instruct them on how to have a relationship with him 
He wants them to know him, not just, some, not just a few things about him that they learned in Sunday school when they were a kid. No, he wants them to grow in a deep understanding and maturity of who he is. But there's something else very fascinating here. In verse 6, look at this. He says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So not only does God desire to be known, he also desires for those who know him to promote him, to make him known. You see, that's what that means, that phrase, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's some good commentary help explaining what this means. It could explain it far better than I can. I want to read you this from theologian T.D. Alexander. He says, kingdom of priests implies that the Israelites will have access to God as priests. You see, that's what Adam and Eve were supposed to be. Did you know that, by the way? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it was kind of like a temple sanctuary, if you will, where the presence of God was, and they were supposed to kind of act as priests. They had a priestly role in the Garden of Eden. But what happened? They rebelled against God. They didn't want to worship the Lord. They served themselves instead of God. And so they were banned because of their rebellion against their creator. They were banned from the presence of God. They could no longer live in his presence. So in the Garden of Eden, they experienced, Alexander says, as priests, the privilege of having immediate access to God's presence. That's what they had, immediate access Now, by obeying God, the Israelites can fulfill God's original purpose for humanity. That's the original purpose, right? As a holy nation, they will experience the privilege of having God dwell among them. And they will be distinct from the world. They will be different from the world. They will be a kingdom of priests with access to God, but they will also be a holy nation that shows the rest of the world what God is like. Tim Chester says the priests represented the Lord and Israel. As a priestly kingdom, Israel was to represent God to the world. The world could not see God, but the world could see Israel and should have seen his glory in them. God's people, you and I, even today, just as Israel was then, we are God's representatives in this world. The world may not know and see who God really is, but you know who they can see and know? They can see and know you. Kyle, I'm not sure what's going on with the mic. Sorry. Hey, Kyle. See you in here. Kyle, Paige and Kyle. I may have to switch to the handheld, which I hate, but I may have to do that. All right, there you, I see him now. Kyle, I may have to switch to the handheld if it does it again. Yeah, I'll do the one over here to my right. So God's people, we are his representatives. I mean, what an amazing role that is, right? Now here's the thing though we have to realize. So to do that well, Okay, to, to live as God's representatives in this world and to do it well. And when I say well, I mean so the world can look at us and say, wow, the gospel of Jesus really does change people's lives. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. And let me be very clear, in all of this that we're about to see, it does not mean that we are perfect and we don't make mistakes. It means that we have faith 
in Jesus. It means that we have reoriented our lives about living with the king. And people see that in us. And so therefore we are a holy nation set apart from the rest of the world in that regard. I read this week, someone said, it's, it's not our similarities with the world that will attract them to Jesus, it's our distinctives. It's what makes us different than the world that will attract them and they'll see that there is a better life in Christ than what the world can offer. That is what God is going to teach his people to do that well, they must appreciate his holiness. God is holy. He is perfectly pure. Here's what the word holy means. God is perfectly pure. He is infinitely great. There is no other being like him. He is majestic. He is perfect in all his ways. Only good comes from God. To summarize that, we say God is holy. We should marvel at this. We should marvel at his holiness and think about it more often because there is so much to learn as we think about it. And that brings us to the second thing we see here in this story. God's holiness teaches us to take our sin seriously. God's holiness teaches us to take sin seriously. This whole scene is very terrifying, isn't it? There's thunder, there's lightning, there's smoke. It's an earthquake. What the people are experiencing is the presence of a perfect and holy God. Nature itself cannot contain him. No one can look directly at him. His holiness is too great. So when we see God's holiness, do you know what that shows us about ourselves? Our lack of holiness. It shows us that we are the complete opposite of God. You know, it's funny because we try to be God ourselves, don't we? We try to be him. I mean, that's really our sinful root problem in our hearts. It's not that just we do bad things. No, 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 no. We try to be God. We try to control our lives. We try to manipulate other people in all these evil, wicked ways that God would never do because he's perfectly holy. He's perfectly good. But we distort who God is and try to be our own version of who we think God should be. It's ridiculous if you think about it. But the only cure for that is to look into God's holiness and see who he really is and see our sin for what it really is and what had to be done about it. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, look at this. This is a similar scene to what we read in Exodus today. The prophet Isaiah sees this vision of God sitting on his throne. He sees angelic beings around the throne. And look at what they say. Verse three, and one called to another and said, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. And the voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. Again, what does this remind you of? Mount Sinai. Verse five, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah can't even fathom the fact that he could stand in God's presence because he is unclean himself. How could he get close to the presence of God? Seeing how perfect God is should show us how unclean we are. So it makes sense, doesn't it, when you think of it that way? 
It makes sense that God is setting up a parameter around the mountain. The people cannot even touch the mountain. They can't get too close to his presence because they are unclean. He is perfect and holy. He cannot be in the presence of someone unclean. Look at verse 12 again. He says, you shall set limits for the people, right? He says, don't even go up to the mountain. Don't touch the edge of the mountain. And if you touch the mountain, what's going to happen to you? If you touch the holiness of God, your uncleanness compared to that, it will kill you. God is teaching his people about what it's going to take to have a relationship with a holy God, to commune with him, to live with him every day. It's a serious thing to live with a holy God. No sinful thing can touch his presence. No sinful thing can even come close. See, our sin... You see what's happening here? Our sin separates us from God. Our uncleanness, our lack of holiness separates us from the perfect holy God he is. And notice in this story, any sinful person who comes close will be killed. And why is that? It's because there's no other way. God's holiness will consume and judge all sin. God is a holy judge who must condemn all sin or else he's not holy, right? We use this illustration at church a lot because it fits so well. A good judge in the court system will not let a serial killer just go free with no punishment whatsoever. We would say he's not a good judge because he doesn't bring justice upon evil. When the same way, God is a good judge and he does bring justice against all evil and one day all evil will be judged completely and fully. And so his holiness is a consuming fire. It will either warm you and protect you or it will kill you. It will judge the sin, so to speak, in that way we see in this story. This story should remind us that sin then is not something that we should take lightly in our lives. Because look at how seriously God takes it. God is not okay with our sin. Boy, that is sure something we learn from this story, isn't it? He's not okay with your sin. You see, here's what Satan teaches us to do. He teaches us to really play down our sinful habits and patterns in our lives. It's not that big of a deal. You'll get away with it. She doesn't have to know. He doesn't have to know. It's a lie. It's just a flat out lie. It disregards the holiness of God that we see in Exodus 19 and we see in Jesus today. It's a lie. Sin is serious, all of it. There's no such thing as a little white lie. There's no such thing. It doesn't matter if you commit murder, right? Or you just fib a little bit to your spouse about something. Any sin is great enough to separate us from a holy God. Now, sins have different consequences on earth, for sure. But any sin is great enough to separate us from a perfectly holy God where unclean creatures cannot even touch the mountain he resides. We must take our sins seriously. You know, 
Listen, guys, one, one sign that you are growing in your faith, one sign that you are truly maturing as a Christ follower and growing in your walk with the Lord is that you become sensitive to sin over time. This is important. Tune in. This is important. The more sensitive that you become to your sin, listen, that's a good thing. And what I mean by sensitive is you learn your struggles. You learn your sinful habits and patterns against God and against others to a point where you can actually become honest about them. You don't have to try to hide in the darkness anymore. You can come forward in the light. You understand God's grace and forgiveness, but you also understand the struggles that you really have. And you also begin to understand your motivations. It's amazing how the gospel works in our hearts. It digs deeper and deeper and deeper until it gets to the rock bottom and shows you, why am I really needing attention from people? Why do I do the things I do, right? It's because I need respect. It's because I need people to think that I am smart or I need people to think that I'm successful. You see, the gospel over time, the more you dive deeper into the word of God, the more you take your sin seriously, it teaches you those underlying motivations beneath the motivations, beneath the behaviors. It's like a layer. You just keep peeling back layers until God reveals to you the real issue. The real issue is you have to be in control. The real issue is you need power. You want people to think highly of you. That is why you tell the lie. That is why you fib on your taxes. That is why you look at pornography. That is why you do the things you do. It's because there is some other motivation deep below the surface that only someone who is truly taking their sin seriously will let the Holy Spirit see and reveal. Well, he sees it, but listen to him as he reveals it. The Apostle Paul declared himself to be the chief of sinners, and he wrote most of the New Testament. I mean, think about that. He declared himself the chief of sinners. This doesn't mean that you sulk in your own pity party. It means you know yourself. Because as you read and study God's word, you let it read and study you. The Holy Spirit reveals your deepest heart problems. You see yourself for who you really are in light of God's holiness. That, that kind of life is spiritual maturity. But it starts by what? Looking at God's holiness. Lastly, number three, God's holiness teaches us to enjoy his grace. Yes, we take our sin seriously, but we also learn to enjoy God himself and his grace. Now, where's the grace in this particular story in Exodus 19, you might say? It's in the fact that God is coming down to his people and shows that he wants to live with them and for them to learn how to love him. That is grace, that he wants to have a relationship with them and teach them over time how to become mature in their faith, how to love him, how to worship him, how to love others. But God makes a way here for his people God makes a way here so that they can approach him, but they must go through who? Moses. Have you noticed that in this story? The one person who is a sinful person, Moses himself, is allowed to approach God. He is allowed on the mountain. 
right? God allows Moses to go up and down the mountain on behalf of himself and the people. He's a mediator. Now, there will be Aaron and priests coming, as we see in Exodus, right, who, who can approach God. But just for now, let's think about Moses and the role he's playing. He's going up and down the mountain on behalf of himself and the people. Moses serves as a connection between God and the people, kind of like a priest, right? And so as great as an act of grace as that was, that method of Moses going up and down, up and down, up and down the mountain was never meant to be permanent. One day, there would be a permanent mediator. There would be a better Moses. On a hill, you could call it a mount perhaps, outside Jerusalem many years later, darkness would fall. The earth would shake. And the consuming fire of God's wrath would be seen. But it would be poured out completely and fully and finally on God's own Son who would take the consuming fire of a holy God and His judgment and His wrath against your sin. He would take it upon Himself as your representative. He would take your place and experience the holy judgment of God so that you would never have to experience the consuming fire of a holy God. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, you know what happened? One of the best, one of my favorite things that the New Testament tells us happened when Jesus died on the cross was the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you're not familiar, the temple curtain separated the, temp the rest of the temple from a place called the Holy of Holies, where God's holiness and his presence was represented. And you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, God himself tore the curtain, which was the separation from unclean people to a holy God. It was the barrier, just like in Exodus 19, the people could not go in. They could not touch. They could not see. They could not live in that presence of a perfectly holy God. But Jesus, the better Moses, our great high priest, who is perfectly clean, when he died on the cross, he died for your uncleanness. He, in fact, took your uncleanness, your sin, on himself. God punished him instead of you. And you know what that means? You come out with a clean record. You get, in this great, beautiful exchange, you get Jesus' record of holiness and perfect righteousness credited to your account as if you were the one who lived that perfect life. You know you don't. You know I don't. We don't. But it's as if we did because our faith is in the one who did, who took your place. You 
Christian, Jesus follower, you have direct access to a holy God. His consuming fire does not burn you, it warms you. It brings you into his presence. He welcomes you with open arms. And that's amazing. Anyone who comes to Jesus can now enter into the presence of a holy God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a priest. We are the priesthood. Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, Peter says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You, church, that's who he's speaking to. He's not speaking to Israel. This was written long after that. He's speaking to the church. We can enjoy God. We can enjoy his presence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, has the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy God? Can we enjoy God? John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God gets glory in your life. Listen, God gets glory in your life when you enjoy him. When you enjoy being a follower of Jesus, when you enjoy his presence, when you enjoy dwelling on the gospel and reading the word and spending time in prayer, that is when God gets the most glory in your life. I know those statements aren't from scripture, but they're true. They teach what the Bible teaches, that God wants us to enjoy him. Enjoying God means that we enjoy even obeying his, obeying his commands. And we're going to see that next week in the Ten Commandments. But we can learn to love God's holiness because Jesus has given us his record. He's making us holy. Living with the king in close proximity, that's one thing. But what if he lives inside of you? That's what we have. That's what you have. The king lives inside your heart. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, I just love how instructive this is. Listen to this. Titus 2, 11 through 14, this is so practical for your daily life when you walk out these doors. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us. God's grace trains us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There will be another trumpet blast, and Jesus will come down again. He will return, and he will renew this world. Everything unclean will be done away with. And everything that is good will flow from him. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And isn't that amazing that God would take the time to train us in godliness through his holiness? 
We are trained by God's holiness and grace. Watching, a watching world will see that and will be attracted to Jesus and the gospel as they see you living your life in training. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, the rest of that says, you know what the reason for all of that is? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. His marvelous light. That is what people want to see, the marvelous light. As they see you being trained by God's holiness, a watching world will say, I need I need that in my life. I need Jesus and his transforming power in my life. And so I want to ask you this morning, as we wrap this up, hey, are you spending time thinking about God's holiness? Are you looking to the word of God on a consistent basis? Have you established a rhythm in your life around your work schedule and all these things? to just sit and soak in the power and the glory of God's word to let his grace and holiness train your heart and soul? Are you making time for that? Have you reoriented and readjusted your life to live in the presence of the king who has come down to live with you, who gave up his own life? A real king on this earth would never do that. But our king did, the one true king. He gave up his life so that he could live with you. Who in your life needs to see you say no to sin, renounce ungodliness, as Titus 2 tells us? Who in your life is watching you live, and this is serious, right? Watching you live unrepentantly deliberately sinning in a way that is unattractive to them and you are perhaps a bad representation of Jesus Christ. That might be some of you here today. You need to say no. You need to renounce that sin in your life and cry out to God and confess it and say, Lord, this is not who I am. This is not who you've made me to be. You've made me your child. Let me experience and enjoy your holiness. Help me to turn away from this sin. Maybe you need to confess that to another brother or sister in Christ and let them help you and hold you accountable for what you're going through. That's a good thing. Don't be embarrassed by that. Be open. Walk into the light. Are you confessing sin when you see God's holiness? Are you renouncing ungodliness? Are you letting God's grace train you? What a beautiful God that he would come down to us, not just to save us, but to sanctify us, to move us, to live on mission for him to a world that desperately needs to see and needs to hear and experience and enjoy his holiness.